This week, we interview Nick Hebert, owner of TheNutrivore.com, and he's going to school us on some seed oil info and tell us what we're getting wrong. Let's get into it. Nick, Nick was saying, well, everything, that was easy. That was easy. <laughs> End of interview. Everything's wrong. <laughs> so, Nick, I, I love your background. It's a, a, bunch Thank of, you. a bunch of seed oils. <laughs> it's funny because as, as we've uh, gotten into this fitness and nutrition journey, um, and I'm much less you know formally educated in it than Dewey here. I'm Josh, by the way, and that's Dewey. Um, or Dwayne. Or Dwayne. Nice, my nice to meet you. Yeah, and uh, you know we just the way seed oils have been demonized. You know, it's just, it's kind of interesting. And I mean, up until yeah. Dewey literally mentioned your name and kind of told me your positions on some things. Um, before that day, I just was super anti-seed oil. In fact, as a test, I'm going to, I'm going to just open up a Google window and I'm going to type R, whoops, I can't that's, type. That's not how you spell R, seed, and then it autofills to bad. oil's bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> So, and I'll just read this sentence here. It says, seed oils are proving, proven to be some of the leading causes of heart disease, cancer, and other life-degrading conditions. Seed, and and it's, this is in bold. Seed oils are absolutely <laughs> bad for you. Seed oils are proven to be some of the leading causes. Okay, so not a, they're not a, the Google is not a fan of the seed oils. So why don't you tell us first, before we get into that whole, um, well, I don't even want to say debate, but conversation, yeah. what, how did you even get started in the you know thinking about nutrition at all uh well i took a little bit of human nutritional science in university back in like 2010 uh i wasn't able to finish the degree because some stuff went wrong with my student loan and i had to drop out uh but since then i've just kind of had a passing interest in nutrition and it wasn't really until like 2017 that i really got interested in nutrition again and my particular like nutrition journey, quote unquote, I guess you could call it, um, kind of started with like low carb. Mm. I, I stumbled across the work of like Gary Taubes and I yes. found his arguments to be pretty persuasive. So I started like a low carb diet. Um, and soon after that, like a ketogenic diet, uh, truth be told, I felt like absolute garbage the entire time I was on that diet. Well, hey, but, let's even back up a sec before we get to that. Um, how, old yeah. the, how old of a gent are you right oh, now? Oh, uh, I'm 33. 33, okay. Almost so, 34. And I can detect a hint of an accent there. Are you from uh, Argentina? I'm from <laughs> Winnipeg, Manitoba. Oh, you're you're close. Yeah, we're in Fargo. So. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. we're right. You're really close. Yep, so <laughs> it's somehow even colder up there but um so you're, you're from canada okay 33 years old so what was your upbringing like were you overweight as a kid did you oh yeah 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 um yeah funny thing about that i was overweight until i was about 21 and then with absolutely no real understanding of what i was doing i was like okay i'm just gonna eat in a way that like I intuit is healthy based on some like vague intuitions that I had. Uh, and so I was like, I'm just going to eat nothing but tofu and broccoli noodles. <laughs> and it's just like, uh, How did that work out? I ate that. I, yeah. Well, no, I didn't work out at the time, but I ate that for like two years straight and lost like a hundred pounds, like over a hundred pounds. Oh, wow. Um, do you think it was just yeah. because of the calories? 
It was yeah, just it's naturally just like calorically I was just restricted. Eating in a deficit, like I, yeah. I was eating like a total wanker, like before that. So, well, what you uh, just said, you ate. It would be pretty easy to be in a deficit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I was pretty much just like mainlining volume. The weird thing is that I cooked everything in the at the time. I cooked everything in like canola oil, and I had like at least one can of Pepsi every day. But I still main I I still maintained a deficit because sure. I lost a hundred pounds on that diet. Right. Um. But yeah, I, I was overweight when I was younger. I'm not overweight now, or at least I don't think I'm overweight by any standard measure. And then what was your, when you were uh, in your younger years, did you, what was your exercise or did you do any resistance training or any type of exercise? I mean, or? Ooh, I didn't really actually start working out until I was like 26. Okay. Um, so before that, like in high school and university, I pretty much just didn't work out at all. Sure. Sure. Okay, so that kind of gets people caught up to how you got interested in this stuff at all, and so so you try. Oh, see, it's funny that you say Gary Taubes because that good calories, bad calories in 2011 was, you know, I'm 50, but I was uh, basically thir- late 30s at the time, and I stumbled upon him, and I was just. I was always skinny, but then I just started to put on a few every couple of years as everyone happens. And that was my gateway into even thinking your, about this. Your was, matrix moment. Yeah, that was my matrix moment was mm. Gary Taubes and the Good Calories, Bad Calories book. Um, but in contrast to you, I felt awesome. Like I started dropping a pound a day when I went low carb mm. and I felt great. So what what do you think uh, – what were your, you know, when you say you felt like crap, like when you were keto or low carb, what was, su- what were you suffering from? What were your symptoms? Um, just like really low energy and my, like my, my brain just always felt like it was in a haze. Like I just never felt totally present. Like I, I just, I felt really terrible. Like I was starving all the time. Hmm. Um, yeah, it was really not a good experience for me. And my exercise capacity at the time was absolute trash. I couldn't work out for more than about maybe 10, 15 minutes without feeling like I was going to faint. Now, when you were um, eating keto, were you eating to uh, satiety? Were you like filling yourself up or were you still trying to also maintain a deficit too? Um, the funny thing is I was eating to satiety, but the weird thing about it is that I must have been in a surplus because the entire time I was on a ketogenic diet, I gained approximately 20 pounds. <laughs> wow. Because I was going to say, it sounds like maybe you were under eating because all, all those symptoms sound kind of related to that. Yeah, yeah. Wow, interesting. I, but I, think, probably, I think I was actually overeating. Wow. Sure. But in the, in, in, in the beginning with the ketogenic diet, and one thing that just absolutely chaps my ass is the the – the perception around the ketogenic diet is that you can just eat whatever you want and and whatever volume you want. And the pounds will melt off. Yeah. yeah. That's kind and, of the yeah, perception. Yeah. 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 And and that's I think that's what leads people down that road. I've talked to so many people who said, Oh, I tried keto. My first question usually is, did you really? Or mm. did you go to Costco and buy a bunch of foods pretending to be the foods you're not supposed to eat? Or keto brownies. Yeah, and then and then over <laughs> and then over consume and just have too much energy. Um, yeah, I think um, my diet quality around that time was actually pretty good. It's just for some reason I find I don't find fat particularly satiating personally. Oh, okay, like my wife's the same foods. exact way. Or, how, yeah. about, how about protein? Like if you just eat straight chicken breast, you develop on that pretty quick, or um, 
Mm, kind like of. I, I find that like fiber and water really push those buttons for mm. me. So if I like just mainline like really fibrous foods and and water, like having a lot of soups or curries or things like that, like that really like mitigates any propensity to overeat that I might have. Oh, it's sure. like a really effective strategy so far, just like mainlining fiber and water. Yeah. Uh, protein, <laughs> I don't know if protein seems to have an independent effect, um, you know, or a, a, an effect independent of say, like just food volume, right? Because chicken breast is, has a lot of volume and it breaks down your stomach very, very slowly. So it maintains its volume for a longer time. So it probably will be satiating for right. you know most people. For sure. Um, but the, yeah, the same the same is true of like uh, fiber that's like bound up with water. So for sure, I, I think food volume is really what most people are actually targeting when they're trying to target either protein or you know they're eating low carbon, eating lots of uh, protein with lots of vegetables. It's just like they're just finding different ways to target mm-hmm. food yeah. volume. Yeah, and I and I I I have a almost a exact if I'm trying to lean out or cut, I use the exact same strategy. I use um, super lean ground Turkey and egg whites and mm. the amount that I can eat <laughs> of that and stay in a deficit is it's obscene. Crazy volume. Mm. Yeah. So after you did keto, then kind of what was your next step of discovery? Um, since you re- well, you felt like crap and then what, 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 what were you led to next? Well, uh, I transitioned away from keto at the same time I was talking to a lot of people about things like, um, you know, scientific literacy and epistemology. And I was really trying to build up uh, a framework for myself that I could use to appraise scientific literature so that I didn't fall victim, so to speak, to the same kind of stuff again. Um, so, at the time, I was just like, well, you know, if it's all about calories, then I should just be eating in a way that actually reduces the amount of calories that I consume. And I just like kind of gravitated to uh, a particular like high fiber diet and started reading the literature and under and actually understanding it, not just reading it and coming away with my own silly interpretations with absolutely no consistent systematic <laughs> epistemic framework right. to work with. Like I was actually like reading it and, and beginning to figure out how to understand it with the guidance of a lot of really smart people in this domain. And um, I just started eating like in a healthier way. Uh, so because I, I mean, the way I was eating on low carb or keto, I in, in retrospect, probably wasn't healthy. I mean, it was mostly whole foods, but I wouldn't characterize it as particularly healthy. So let's get into the, that a little bit. And when you're trying to be discerning, you know, when you get all this data coming at you, and that's really our problem, too, you know, as we go do these episodes, and we talk about different subjects, we don't know you know, other than our own experience and just the anecdotal experience of that we see, it's hard to tell what sources are reputable, right? And it sounds like you've really yeah. done a deep dive as far as getting to the actual data and trying to skip some of the middlemen. Um, so how, you know, can you give people out there advice, you know, cause obviously they're bombarded by commercials and, you know, anytime there's a, Social financial media. opportunity that people are going to jump on these, uh, you know, fads, whether it's Atkins, keto, vegan, you know, anything that they can make money off of, they're going to do. So how do you, well, how do you just separate those, the wheat from the chaff, as they say? <laughs> well, in terms of advice, like I, I don't like to give personalized diet advice to anybody really. 
Um, I try to steer away from that. I don't have any credentials and I don't really feel comfortable giving anybody personalized diet advice. But if I was to make, you know, a general recommendation that I think applies uh, in the most number of cases, I would say that if you have any particular specific personal diet goals, you should talk to your primary care physician, have them refer to you or refer to you or like talk to your primary care physician, have them refer you to a dietitian or somebody who works in the domain of dietetics and have them work with you uh, toward your goals instead of just, you know, trying out different meme diets on the internet like pairs of pants. Uh, <laughs> actual, actually talk to a professional about what your goals are and how to best achieve them. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's very, very confusing. But for everybody eats, so yeah. everyone's an expert. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, everybody's goals are very, usually I'm sure nine out of 10 times, it's I want to lose fat and I want to be more muscular. You know, that's like everyone's overarching goal all the time. And yeah, I understand like, like Dewey always say, everybody's like as unique as their fingerprints, right? Yeah. Their metabolic profiles is as unique as their fingerprints. Yeah. You have to customize and, and, you know, basically make a custom, custom thing for everybody. I mean, you have to personalize care to the individual, but I mean, you can also make broad recommendations too, because though everybody technically differs, people do fall into distributions and you can target the most number of people um, with a single bit of advice. I mean, I don't think there's any real barrier to doing that credibly. Sure. Um, So talk about your uh, nutrient density is one thing that you mentioned a lot uh, when I was looking at your, your blog and it seemed like that was kind of a one of your main priorities for when you're deciding what to eat was the nutrient mm. density and like scoring, scoring the foods and also well, based that, on the uh, availability and the cost and everything else, um, like scoring things. Is that, you can speak to that a little bit, the nutrient density piece. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So back in 2019, um, I decided to like, quit my job because I really didn't like the manager that I had. The manager was absolutely like toxic and pathological, (laughs) constantly accusing me of like lying, even though I could verify to the dude that like that there were witnesses who witnessed this. And this is what this person told me. And here's the verification. Here's the messages and the DN, the, the private messages and the, you know, the text messages. Here's the verification. I'm not lying. And he would just never believe me even <laughs> if he had evidence. So I like really didn't like this guy. So I was like, okay, enough is enough. I'm just going to quit my job. Now I had some savings um, and I wanted to figure out how to get the the most amount of nutrition for the least amount of money. So I just came up with like a, a, a way of scoring nutrient density. It was really rudimentary. Like it was nothing that I would even, uh, it, it, it was nothing to write home about. It was a really rudimentary kind of measure of mu- nutrient density. And then I would find like the average cost per hundred grams. I would just divide one by the other. And then it would give, it would just spit out a diet that yielded the most amount of nutri- nutrition for the least amount of money. Um, and I was told that there is a community of people who kind of like love this stuff. It's like a, it's a subreddit called eat cheap and healthy. Mm. Oh, so that, so I was told like, just post that on there. People would love it. And it got like 8,000 upvotes or something like that. Like it was, it made a huge splash. But the thing is that people in the comments made tons of recommendations about what I could do to make the, the spreadsheet better. And basically the product that I sell today, the Nutridex. Yeah, I have that up on the screen right now. 
Yeah, it's basically just me integrating every single suggestion that people make, <laughs> right? So, like, it's it's not really like my project so much as it was like a community project and I was just the guy pushing all the buttons, right? I was just right. the guy implementing all of the suggestions. It's like a Reddit whiteboard. A lot of, like, uh, and suggestions are still rolling in. Like I recently had a conversation with uh, a dude who lives in the UK who knows how to do genetic programming. So mm-hmm. like we ran a whole bunch of um, uh, food characteristics through genetic programming in order to figure out how to do some of the scores. So what we do is we would align the food categories in a way that was congruent with, say, the dietary guidelines, for example. So we'd, uh, we all, we'd stratify all of the food categories in that way. And then all of the foods within that category, the genetic programming would find correlates and similarities in all of the data such that it would produce a calculation that if you plugged that into the spreadsheet, it would stratify all of the foods according to that stratification, mm. um, which was really really cool. So there's also there's all sorts of stuff in that in that spreadsheet. Like the backstory for it is absolutely gigantic. <laughs> right. Um, That's super cool. But most of it is not even my ideas. It's mm-hmm. just other people's like passing suggestions. Hey, it'd be cool if you had this. It'd be cool if you had a chronometer like tool in there that you could use, uh, you know, you could select different foods and it would tell you the, the micronutrient breakdown because the data is there anyway, you might as well do it. Right. Oh, it'd be cool if you had custom scoring and it'd be cool if you did this and that and the next thing. And I just did everything anybody ever suggested I just put in there. <laughs> So let's let's get into that. So I know that that you sort of weighted things on the on your spreadsheet based on uh, affordability and things like that. Now let's get rid of that and just tell me, like, if money was no object, if you're you know super rich and could get had access to any food, what is the pinnacle? Like, what's what's the what scores the highest of all Uh, foods on earth? I could I could actually open that up and take a look because. I'm just curious. The answer to that question, yeah, yeah, it's actually really interesting. So the the answer to that question depends on how you are actually measuring the individual foods. So I have a guess, though. If it's can I guess hmm? before you say what it is? Yeah, yeah, sure, you can guess. Twinkies. <laughs> oh, it's not Twinkies. Uh, I, I'm not sure Twinkies are on the sheet. <laughs> they probably but didn't now make the threshold. It, yeah. I should probably put them on. I had. Um, I actually had a real guess. Okay, Dewey's so, got a real guess. He's, before you say it, Dewey's going to throw out his. Okay. What is it? Salmon. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, um, that's, it's actually it's close one. to the top. So salmon is close to the top. The Very thing good. is, um, if you stratify by weight, like so you're holding weight constant, so it's 100 grams. Oh, the thing that's sure. actually at the top is yeast. Yeast is at the very top. Okay. Uh, but if you're stratifying per serving size, which is closer to how people interact with their food, uh, organ meats are at the very top. Hmm. Um, depending on uh, some other stratifications, like per calorie, um, brewed drinks like coffee and tea are at the top. Because if you're dividing the right. total nutrition by the number of calories, um, drinks with next to no calories in them are going to score pretty well. Makes sense. So. It really depends on how you are actually measuring nutrient density. Yeah, I think serving size, grams? just as a, yeah, you know, ser- a layman, serving size seems like the most you know applicable way to actually use yeah. that information. So you said it was salmon or organ meats was up was at the top of that. Yeah, 
And that's so, just because of the massive concentration of the nutrients contained in them? Yeah. So, like, it's organ meats, mollusks, fish, wild game, uh, mammal meats, and egg products, poultry, and then breakfast cereals. They're all at the top. Okay. Um, whoa, whoa, whoa. Breakfast cereal? Really? Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that. Breakfast well, cereal. Yeah. Breakfast just because they cram it full of nutrients? Because they yeah. do all the adding. Yeah, they're, they're fortified, so, so they are incredibly nutrient-dense. Uh, hmm. Soy is at the top as well. Seeds and yeast and legumes are kind of intermediate. Um, the, the only problem that I would have with this is making any prescriptions based on the stratification would probably be erroneous because a lot of these foods aren't particularly healthy. Uh, for right. example, fatty mammal meat is not particularly healthy if eaten in large amounts. So, you know, you take it with a grain of salt. Uh whether you know the extent to which its nutrient density dictates its health value is kind of like uh so you it doesn't correlate exactly yeah i don't think i don't i don't think that the nutrient density of a food necessarily correlates with its health value if anything it just correlates with the protein content nutrient density tends to track protein i did a whole bunch of uh sensitivity analyses of the data in the spreadsheet and it really turned out that like nutrient density correlated very, very tightly with protein. Okay. That makes sense. Um, that's why, you know, it's so satiating, at least personally, you know, for me, that, mm. and you were talking about the, you know, if you eat a chicken breast, it, you'd be hungry for, or l more satisfied for longer. Um, probably has to do with probably. That. And maybe that explains why, you know, when, when I eat more carbs, I tend to get hungry quicker, even though I consumed a lot more calories. Um, and there's all kinds well, of psychological um, effects too, right? The triggerings, the cravings, things like that. Um, how do you how do you factor was, that um, into this? Well, there, I, I do actually have a satiety score that was also generated using genetic programming, but we used data by Holt et al. I think 1995. She actually did a huge stratification of satiety per food. And we used her data to come up with a satiety score. Now, it's just like kind of an exploratory thing. It doesn't really have a whole lot of validity. But um, just as like an, it kind of like an, uh, an intellectual interest, we kind of built this satiety score. And it doesn't really correlate with nutrient density either. Mm -hmm. It seems to correlate with fiber and water and maybe fat and uh, maybe uh, carbohydrates, mm. but not, not a whole lot with like protein, um, or, or nutrient density as in, in as independent, uh, variables. So take it with a grain of salt. Like it's entirely exploratory and it's just kind of like an interesting intellectual exercise. Sure. Um, I think satiety, I don't think we really have good satiety data. I think satiety foods, is, a, to be honest. I, I, I always tell people, I think satiety is an N of one. I really do. I think if, uh, yeah, I would if there's agree perceived, with that. Uh, if there's perceived satiety, then they're, they're satiated. Yeah. I mean. That's true. And um, there is data to support that view. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, because, I mean, there's the whole, you know, the psychological aspect of all this, too. Like, for me, like, when I start, if I get on the road and, I, you know, somebody hands me a Twizzlers, then it's like game over, man. Like, give me that bag. <laughs> right. You know, it's. That's you know, me and breakfast yeah, cereal. I right, can eat a whole box to, and you know, never get full. I, I, I can't moderate, you know, and. I just don't have that ability. So I don't know what psychologically is going on there and how the, how the addictions or the cravings and all that plays into. But I mean, like that, that's a huge piece of this for me. Um, 
that's why I, you know, for me, I, I'd sort of like being a, an alcoholic, you know, you have to be, <laughs> I have to abstain from certain things. Otherwise I just go down that mm. road and then just start overeating and gaining again. Um, so let's get into this, uh, um, the seed oil thing. So, you know, like I said, sure. when, I, when I typed in to Google, you know, our, our seed oils and just says bad for you, autocompletes right to that. And that's been our whole messaging, you know, that's been given to us uh, by pretty much just about everybody. Um, I, I, I the, the, the one question to just kick this off with I have is I've followed you on Twitter for a while now. And mm-hmm. you talk about. You do a lot of debunking of the myths around seed oil, um, using data, using facts, using science, which has me going <laughs> down the same path. But for the listeners, what is probably the like top three or four or five beliefs of why they're bad? Um, okay, so... The primary mechanisms by which they are claimed to be bad are usually oxidation. So like they oxidize easily. So uh, people relate the oxidation of these uh, poly- the, the polyunsaturated fats in, in the vegetable oils. People relate the ease of oxidability or oxidation, I guess I should say, of those fatty acids, they relate the ease of oxidation to disease outcomes because that's a really easy line for like mechanistic line for people to draw, right? Because almost every single disease state has to do with oxidative stress in some capacity or another, right? So sure. they could always draw this parallel or this line connecting the dots like, oh, the, the seed oils contain the polyunsaturated fats. The polyunsaturated fats oxidize easily. Oxidative stress is implicated in this disease process. Therefore, eating more vegetable oils leads to oxidative stress and the disease process. And it's like, I don't think that's a particularly sound inference, um, but just, that's one mechanism. Saying, basically, that, just because uh, it follows it, that it's a correlate, that it's causing it. Yeah, so like, it, I, I just don't think it's a very valid inference to make. It's not. I don't think it's a sound inference to make either because, like, just because two things... I mean, just because you can make a, me- uh, a biologically plausible mechanism and write it down on a piece of paper and have it make intuitive sense to you doesn't mean that when you consume more vegetable oils, it actually leads to the disease process. Now, th- this is uh, yeah. a huge part of the communication of the so-called science around vegetable oils and health. Now, the research that is typically cited is science. However, it's being used to make wild extrapolations that are completely inappropriate. Uh, but to answer your question, like the the, the top three uh, mechanisms by which people propose vegetable oils cause disease are usually like inflammation, oxidation and evolution right so we didn't evolve to eat vegetable oils so therefore there's an evolutionary mismatch therefore they're bad for us sure because it didn't Uh, exist you know two thousand years ago basically yeah so and the inflammation thing it's it's like oh well that's kind of tied to the oxidative stress thing because it's like these things oxidize and when they oxidize it creates a lot of like cascades in the body that's are going to lead to inflammation and those are the primary mechanisms that you can kind of tie 
into like every other disease process that people like to talk about, whether or not it's like, I don't know, type two diabetes or cognitive decline or uh, energy intake or cancer or heart disease. One of those three is bound to come up in the conversation, generally speaking. Um, so the problem, yeah, oh yeah, you know, go I was going to say, no so problem. then, uh, you know, what do you think is actually responsible for what seed oils are getting blamed for? Um, well, it depends on the end point, right? So like if you're talking about heart disease, there are many risk factors for heart disease that are even independent of, you know, uh, you know, different fatty acid subtypes, you know, of course, saturated fat increases LDL and LDL will increase your cardiovascular disease risk. Like that's pretty much, uh, incontrovertible at this point, but, um, so basically you're let's like put two different meals against each other. Right. You know, like last night yeah. I had some steak tips cooked in butter, um, and water, right. Um, mm -hmm. to drink. So, and with a lot of salt on them. So that was kind of my, so, you know, I'm violating a lot of the, you know, what my grandpa was told to never do. Right. Don't use real butter, you know, use margarine instead. Um, you know, cut down on the sodium, don't eat the red meat. Well, I mean, I was doing all three. Um, so, you know, in your opinion, that is a bad example of a meal? Well, okay. So well, like, would a, would a better meal be um, some broccoli fried in Wesson? You know what I mean? <laughs> just to, just um, to give two extremes here, like, you know, or whatever, uh, or maybe even some salmon fried in Wesson. Would that be better yeah, than I mean, the, the red meat so fried in butter? With salt so if you had a chunk of red meat fried in butter versus a bowl of bro or, or like a plate of broccoli and salmon fried in, you know, non-hydrogenated margarine, for example, if you scaled that up on a population level and you had people just eating either of these two things. So you have possible world A where mm -hmm. people are eating the, the steak fried in butter and everybody's eating it to the same degree. Otherwise known as the, the good place. <laughs> yeah. And, and then you have possible world B where everybody is eating like the broccoli and salmon fried in, in margarine. And if you're gonna if you're gonna ask me, would cardiovascular disease rates be higher or lower, all else equal um, in either world, I would say that they would probably be higher in world B or, or they would probably be higher in world A and lower in world B. That would okay. be my intuition based right. on the data. So do you think, uh, okay, no, no, let's re let's uh, refine this a little bit. Let's say I had those same steak tips, you know, fatty red meat, um, just cooked in vegetable oil versus instead of butter. You're saying that's an improvement? Yeah. That, it, it, at a population level, if you scale, I can't speak to whether or not it would be an improvement to you personally. Um, I could make an inductive yeah, inference that it probably here. would be. Um, but if you scaled it up on a population level, I would say that it, that would be an improvement. And there is data on that specific substitution, actually, hmm. uh, on a population level. It's so, interesting. Yeah, it there is funny because, a, uh, well, like my grandpa, I always use this example. My, my grandpa had a heart attack back in the 80s. And, you know, his doctor was on him, you know, get rid of that butter, switch to this margarine, <laughs> you know, uh, cut down on the sodium, you know, do all that stuff. Um, and, you know, that advice is kind of flipped now. And it kind of reminds me of how eggs were demonized, and they're kind of back, then they're demonized again, and then they're, you know, it's always flip flopping and the nutritional advice uh, on whether something's 
you know, evil or not constantly <laughs> switches. Right. Um, so, you know, we're out here trying to make these decisions and I'm thinking, okay, well, butter's kind of a, it's a closer, it's a less processed, you know, closer to straight out of the animal kind of, uh, you know, product. So I always revert to that if I have a choice versus, you know, like behind you, the, the road, well, I think the, 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 the highly processed, the highly food. processed, pro- uh, well, process. And am um, I just completely wrong in thinking that like, is just something completely well, made in a lab better for me? So here's the thing. I don't find the pers- I don't find the appeal to nature fallacy particularly persuasive. If you know it's closer to nature, it's going to be better. I'm not particularly persuaded by that. In fact, I think the optimal human diet, if I could use such a phrase, uh, probably hasn't been discovered yet, and it is probably largely, if not entirely, artificial in nature. But what goes into that? Like, I understand, you know, like they're talking about lab-grown meats and all this stuff. So you're saying like Star Trek style, like the replicator spits out a cube, you know, and then it's going to well, have the perfect balance of all. It, it I'm speaking more and... to a principle than an actual like conceptualization of what it would look like. I'm speaking to a principle, right? So like, let, yeah. I, let me just run a thought experiment really uh, quickly with you. So let's say we take the most healthy, natural diet that you can think of. Well, you know, a diet that you think is healthy and ostensibly you take the position that closer to nature is probably better, right? So you take the nat- the, mo- the most healthy natural diet you can think of. Now, tell me whether or not you believe that such a diet would drive the risks of diet-related chronic disease down to zero. Hmm. Never. But it, would it, would it drive it down to zero, zero or, or, or or would there be residual risk? There's always, there's always going to be some, but it's, yeah, it's, it's there, all relative. There's always going to be some residual risk, right? Yep. And so here's the thing. If we wanted to improve the effect of diet even more, how would we do that without artificially manipulating the food? You couldn't. You couldn't, right? So Mind blown. <laughs> right. The, the the diet that is likely optimal for human beings, if I again, if I could use such a phrase, is likely to be artificial in some capacity. And it's going to be the perfectly correlated uh, amount of macros and ingredients all in some type of, you know, form that hasn't been introduced yet, is what you're saying. Well, I don't know specifically what the composition would be. I'm speaking more to a principle here. Like, I I have no idea what the end result would look like. I'm just saying that, in principle, it would seem to make logical sense that such a diet would likely be uh, largely artificial in nature. Hmm. And infinite. Yeah, I mean, you know, it makes makes sense on a, like you said, on the Star Trek, take it out 300 years kind of level um, that we haven't haven't got there yet. Hmm. So, I'm where, confused now. I don't know what to eat. Where Where do you, <laughs> Nick? Where, help me. Where does your research fall, Nick? On the because I have a friend who's a cardiologist, and he's very adamant about low fat. It, pro, it, he's mm. pro low fat. It, yes, he's very adamant about eating a low fat diet. So he thinks fat is the. The enemy. For sure. Yeah. He's, well, he's a cardiologist. That's yep. their traditional training is, is they're, they're slave to LDL, which is fine. They're, he's smarter than I am. But where do you fall on his take of picking winners and losers when it comes to oil? Cause he'll tell me that safflower or avocado or EVV, EVOO, good vegetable 
bad. And how interesting? How do they come to that picking yeah, the you, winners and losers? You're right. Do you differentiate between the types of oils? Is no, there... I really because I don't think that the type of oil is doing the heavy lifting in terms of disease risk. I think it's largely driven through the fatty acid composition. So I just lump them all into the same category if they have a high unsaturated to saturated ratio. Because like obviously the the number one diet again the Mediterranean diet is super mm-hmm. heavy in EVOO. Yeah, um, it's like it's got a lot of fat, and and we've tested um, this head to head. You know, uh, EVOO versus nuts and seeds, and PrediMed versus Control, and mm. there is non inferiority between olive oil and nuts and seeds. So like I'm not entirely sure why we should prefer nuts and seeds over oil, mm. unless you prefer them. I mean, it comes down to personal preference. But in terms of disease risk, it seems like they're non inferior. So. Um, I'm not sure where the idea that, you know, different types of oils have different, I mean, they could have different effects, right? I'm not saying that they don't. I just, in terms of what I believe at the moment, I have no particular reason to think that there's anything other than the fatty acid composition, which is doing the majority of the heavy lifting Hmm. um, in in terms of reducing disease. So if it's unsaturated, I, I would fully expect that, say, for example, uh, a high oleic, uh, or even not even high oleic, just like, uh, I, w- I would fully expect that canola oil and olive oil and, uh, avocado oil and sunflower oil would be all largely non-inferior to one another in terms of reducing disease risk Sure, because they all are rich in unsaturated fats. I've often thought, and this is just, just my thought process for, the the inherent risk that seems to be implied because it's trendy to 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 shit on seed oils you know that you talk you <laughs> yeah. talk about it every day so <laughs> I, but i think my personal opinion is and i and the further i get down this rabbit hole the more and more i learn that i think seed oils get a bad name because they're so incredibly calorically dense and there's just That's so thing, much yeah. excess energy and it's easy to yeah. overconsume. Yeah, they are the source of the added calories in the modern food environment. Like, like other than sugar and flour, like per gram, like seed oils dominate in terms of the added calories in hyperpalatable processed foods, right? So it's really easy to, to demonize them just looking at the ecological association. You know, vegetable oils are going up in the population. Obesity and, ty- and type 2 diabetes are going up in the population. Therefore, seed oils uniquely cause diabetes. And it's like, uh, I'm not so sure. Um, it's a correlation like, versus causation again. Yeah. And it's like the, it's the, the, one of the silliest types of correlations in, uh, to draw a causal inference from. So... Like another thought experiment was say you have possible world A where all of the junk food contains seed oils and then you have possible world B where all of the junk food contains, you know, let's say, can, uh, let's say uh, coconut oil or beef tallow. It's like, would we really be in a better position? Right. Because, I don't think so. Right. Because in a Twinkie, you know, there's a lot going on there that's not healthy for you. <clears throat> And you're seed. saying that the seed oils get wrongly blamed for their portion of and the so blame. do the sugars because you got the seco the seco zealots who are like oh my god it's it's and you, or you got the low carb zealots who are like don't eat that brownie it's carbs and then you mm-hmm. got the seco the zealots saying no it's 
sugar and oil together and it's just calorically dense yeah i i just i i don't think that the quality of the fat is interacting too much with the hyper palatability of the food because we have actually tested the effect of different fatty acid subtypes on satiety and ad libitum energy intake multiple times in controlled feeding trials and there is universally like no significant effect of of modulating or changing the fatty acid composition of uh, diets on ad libitum energy intake and satiety. So I, I mean, like in terms of an independent effect of seed oils increasing energy intake, like I'm I'm not sure why I would have to grant that to anybody based on the data that's available. Right. Sure. So then, what like what are you eating every day? Like, what's your typical day? Like, tell us <laughs> well, what you know. Because you've had all this data and you've processed this. So what are you landing with? See, like I, I mean, sometimes I eat in ways that I know are like not the best. Like (laughs) I see some hot dogs on Instagram here. Well, I, I, (laughs) (laughs) I crushed a whole bag. I crushed like half a bag of Oreos last week because we were all dunking on this clown on Twitter. Like uh, me and some people on my Discord server, are like we should all take pictures of ourselves holding boxes of Oreos. Oh, no. <laughs> wasn't, I just had a box of Oreos, so I crushed half of it. But wasn't Saladino, what was I, it? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I I argue with so many people every week. Um, <laughs> I, it's hard to keep them all straight. I actually have a channel on my Discord server that I use to try to keep them all straight. Um, <laughs> just to organize your enemies. <laughs> yeah, organizing my enemies. That's um, good. But in terms of like what I'm eating right now, I'm actually like on an Indian food kick. So like I've been eating a lot of Indian food. So give me um, an example. Like what's a what's a typical meal for you or like a day in a day? Curious. So, so uh, this morning I woke up and had uh, sambar with dosa, which is like kind of like an Indian soup, uh, sort of like a vegetable stew with a lot of spices and um, uh, dosa is kind of like a crepe. Uh, although uh, I'm aware that like yeah, there are certain people who are aficionados of Indian food. Oop, really I see it on your dislike. Insta. A, I got a <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of it right here. So yeah, you really just like dosa being referred to as a crepe, but it is kind of like a crepe. It's like a savory fermented crepe. Yeah, uh, looks good. So that's what I had for for lunch. Or that's what I had for breakfast this morning. I see that? Yeah, the soup um, looks fantastic. It does look good. Yeah. <clears throat> so, okay. Then, what, like, what's another example of a meal? I'm, I'm kind of going through your Instagram here too. So we're bring up some pictures here. Um, this one says, um, Indian cooking, starting to make, make it's like a pita, dishes. like yeah, a pita looking. Yep. Tofu and plantains, onion and pineapple sauce. <laughs> no idea what to call this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if you want to know what I eat, you can just pretty much go to my Instagram. Right. Okay. Uh, truth, truth be told, looks I don't meat, actually eat meat. a whole lot of meals. And you're, like, it looks like you're not that much meat either. Right. No, um, I okay. So depending on who you ask, some people would qualify me as vegan. Some people would not qualify me as vegan. Uh, it depends on who you ask, honestly, uh, because I still consume uh, animal foods under certain circumstances and only under certain circumstances. So, for example, I eat I eat bivalves because I have absolutely no credible reason to believe that they are sentient animals. Um, so they have as much moral value to me as a head of lettuce. So I don't really care about them. So I eat bivalves. Um, What's a bivalve? Is that like a clam? 
Yeah, it's like clams, oysters, okay. gotcha. scallops, that kind of stuff. Sure. And uh, uh, aside from that, if people are throwing food out that contains meat and there's absolutely no reason that it needs to go in the garbage, um, I will eat it. I don't consider that to be like a rights violation or anything like that. I don't have any moral issues with it. So for you, uh, so is it more of a health thing or or a, a moral thing, or is it kind of like both those put together for you? Um. I would say it's pretty much almost almost all like a moral thing because like there are animal foods that I wouldn't eat that I would fully grant are perfectly healthy, like salmon, for example. Do you watch Yellowstone? Um, Yellowstone? Yeah, do you watch uh, Yellowstone on no. Paramount? Well, there is funny because no. there was a quote from uh, – well, and this is one of the arguments I've had with uh, uh, other, you know, vegans was, you know, that there's basically no way to avoid – the killing of multiple kinds of animals in the production of your food. So, you know, how do you reconcile that? You know, if the combine's going through the field and it's chopping up the mice and the snakes and the mice and the rabbits and everything. Um, Oh, it's just well, a matter I mean, of like, which, <laughs> you know, yeah. what, what level it happens. People, at. Or is it because it's on. not intentional that it, that doesn't count or how do you reconcile that? Oh no. Like, well, I mean like it, saying that the the moral culpability of an action hinges on whether or not it was intended i mean like the reductio ad absurdum for for that would be like oh like the janitor in the the doomsday room slipped and accidentally hit the button and blew up the world <laughs> so like would that be okay just because he didn't intend to do it it's like of course not well, i ran you over because um, i was drunk and driving and right. i didn't mean so to but. The, yeah, exactly. So the way I deal with this or the way I think it should be dealt with is that if the claim is that cropland actually results in more rights violations or more death than wildland, if that's the claim, then it needs to be substantiated with empirical evidence. And it's it's an empirical claim. And until I'm given that evidence, I have no reason to grant my interlocutor well, how about cropland crop versus ranch land? I mean, they're both for the production of food. One has like 100 cows on it, and it's so, so many acres or whatever, so you're going to kill 100 cows in the production of, you know, my steak. Well, there's more on that wildland. If it wasn't cropland, that's, that, that's, that's a different article. Like, that's a different proposition, right? So the empirical claim would be that cropland results in more deaths or more rights violations in total than wildland or or pasture land, right? Because there's more than just cows on pap on pasture land. There's ground nesting birds. There's 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 and animals I, just like there are. And in my argument land. is actually, I think less sentient beings get killed intentionally in uh, you know ranching because they're not you know spraying. Well, I'm not, not concerned with intentions here. I'm not concerned okay. with intentions. I, I'm just I'm just trying to address the exact empirical claim that sure. people tend to make here. The exact empirical claim is that cropland results in more deaths or more rights violations than wildland. And until I have empirical data divulging that that is the case, I have no reason to grant them that it's the case. So I don't well, I would see agree with how that. I don't think it's also to summarize, prove it. Well, yeah. To summarize, if the if 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 the claim is in, is an empirical claim, the burden of proof is on the person making it. Like, I have no reason to. I'm agnostic about the uh, the value or the uh, the culpability of one type of land over the other right now, just because I haven't seen any empirical data quantifying the deaths and rights violations <laughs> on either type of land. So, if the empirical claim, I, also, I just don't even think the empirical claim goes through. 
But also we're not, you know, it's, I, I mean, I'm just, you know, obviously not as intelligent to play lawyer in this stuff, but, you know, we're talking about, okay, you have to get your food from somewhere, right? So you have to, you can't really choose between wildland and one of the, or either crop or, ra- or ranch land. It's either, you know, it's got to be the ranch land or cropland, right? That's the two choices if we want to eat. So, yeah. Okay. So I'm just I'm just using like ranch land and wildland interchangeably. I'm meaning the same thing when I say. Oh, okay. So you're talking about like a pasture with a hundred cows on it, you know, and mm-hmm. I I harvest those cows yearly, versus mm-hmm. you know the same amount of acres that make uh, soybeans or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. So, given you know those two uh, hundred acres, let's say, you know, well we know a hundred cows are going to die because they're going to get harvested. I mean, I would make the case that way more than 100 critters are going to die in the in the pasture, and you're just saying that that's not true? No, 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 no it's, not that it's, it's not that I'm saying it's not true. I'm just saying that if you're making the claim that more animals are going to die on the cropland, that needs to be substantiated. There are more animals on the pasture land than just, on, than, than just the cows, and right? And they do spray so unless you. Land. Nah. Um, it, it, it's just an empirical claim. It needs to be backed right. up with empirical evidence. Right. But it seems like you're making a choice based on something. You know, you've chosen to not. Usually feelings. <laughs> well, right. You've well, chosen to not eat, to not focus on the the meat consumption because of that claim. So you, you kind of have picked one. Mm-hmm. And so what's that based on? Then? But, if but, but, don't but, I, but either I, way. yeah, I, I picked one over the other because I think one is morally reprehensible. But at the same time, I have no reason to believe that in terms of the amount of death I'm contributing to or the amount of death that's occurring on that land is any more or any greater than if the circumstances were different and it was pasture land. Like I've just ha- I haven't seen any data that would divulge that that is the case. So do you think if that were presented, and I don't know if anybody's studying this. It would be impossible to quantify. Well, I don't know. I'm sure they have to have somebody sitting out the end of the combine. There there have been been attempts. There have been attempts to quantify it. I believe there were a few studies that use tracking technology to actually um, track the movements of animals on the ground inside of a crop. And as it turns out, like when they hear the big, loud combine coming by, they just move. Um, yeah, they get but the they, out of when, there. Yeah, they, they get out of there. But the thing is that when the entire cropland is actually ha- has been clear cut, there is no place for them to hide anymore. And they're displaced onto wild land or, or pasture land or whatever. And then they're just eaten by predators. Right. So it's not clear to me whether or not if you just remove the cropland and put pasture land that the animals that are existing in that ecosystem would actually be better off. In fact, it could probably be better to have the crops because then they have at least some kind of protection for a larger period of time. And food. Um, well, it sounds like we solved yeah, that. And, and food. <laughs> we definitely settled that. So we're good. <laughs> well, it's interesting to hear people's perspectives on, uh, on these issues though. Um, so, okay. So, you know, Tell us about your your product here. So I'm, I'm on your. I got your Nutridex pulled up. So that kind of the main thing that you're. Um, so what do you do now? For is this kind of what you do for a living now, or do you actually like? Um, you have to well, get another I sell boss? a few. I, I I still sell a few of those things a week. Most of my income comes from doing side projects and from my patrons and random donations that I get from people who are like. 
I like the fact that you said this, and then they just send me money on PayPal. <laughs> on Patreon like, and stuff? Okay. Yeah, I so see. I got your Patreon yeah. pulled up here, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, cool. yeah, that's where most of my income has been coming from. Uh, I actually recently got an offer to com- to do a master's program at the University of Manitoba, provided that I can get my bachelor's finished. So maybe oh. I'll pursue that. I, I, I'm not decided on that. Yet. Yeah, I saw that you tweeted that today, wasn't it? Or yesterday? Uh, yeah, I think it was yesterday I, I tweeted that. I still don't know what I'm going to do, honestly. I see so. you have a uh, podcast called the Nutrivore podcast also. Yeah, yeah. We're just kind of going through your stuff here real quick so people can yeah. see what's <laughs> Okay, what's maybe cooking. I should open my website so I can track. Oh, no, that's right. Uh, and then the Nutridex is available for nineteen ninety nine. So that's the spreadsheet that has all the scores, and it kind of goes through the story of how that was, cre- that was created, which you've gone into here as well. Um, yeah. And then you spend most about 90% of your time just arguing with people, it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, like – it's not a huge amount of time. Like maybe once every like 20 minutes, I'll like tweet back to somebody. But like usually, especially when my kid's here, I'm usually just hanging out with my kid. Um, and then when she goes to bed, I'm working on projects uh, for my Patreon or for my blog, or I'm currently writing a paper that's been uh, occupying a bit of my time. Um, but yeah, yeah the Twitter, the, the Twitter well, arguments right? don't, they, the Twitter arguments don't actually, they're not really super intrusive into my life. They're just kind of like <laughs> something that I do on the side. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not hard to, you don't have to go looking far if you're looking for a fight. And people get, Twitter. Oh, yeah, people yeah. get very, I mean, <laughs> I've considered this conversation very civil, but people do get super worked up about this stuff. You know, yeah, there's, it's there's, actually kind of funny the the extent to which people get really heated about these kinds of discussions, yeah, especially kind of, like people like Tucker Goodrich, for example. I've seen him throw multiple hissy fits on Twitter over very <laughs> simple questions. And it's like, dude, why are you getting so mad? Why you got to be mad? And, right? and, and you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things because I follow <laughs> nutrition Twitter pretty closely, um, as do you. And. Mm-hmm. There's some really, 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 really intelligent people on both sides that are super polarized. But it seems when that emotion takes over and the anger, (laughs) the anger clouds all of their intellect (laughs) and they just turn into just raging idiot. And you know, you know who I think might be the, the worst is Lane Norton. Uh, he can get pretty heated. I think a lot of it is theatrics on his part, though. He he really just whipping up the crowd. Yeah, he gets a big kick out of razzing people. Sure. (laughs) I mean, he's such a smart guy, but then he just loses his shit. And yeah, yeah, he gets so wound up. Now, I, I try to keep myself I like I try to refrain from letting conversations devolve into histrionics like really early on. Like I always give people a fair shake. But mm-hmm. like after somebody has been exposed as a sophist, if I take the piss out of them afterward, a lot of people are like, oh, you're just a troll. It's like, no, I'm just shaming this guy for not right. acknowledging <laughs> the fact that he's wrong. Like, <laughs> right, right. For the, for the non-Canadians in the room, what's a sophist? Oh, a, a sophist <laughs> is just somebody who relies on arguments that are possibly persuasive on the face of it but break down under you know a modicum a modicum of scrutiny gotcha sure um you know people who are like oh the seed oils are going up and 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 type 2 diabetes is going up it's like on the face of it yeah that's actually true um 
But then when you dig into the implications of their causal inference, it just breaks down. Does and it cause the it? people? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the people making those types of arguments. Yeah. They're soft. It's like, <laughs> it's like saying every person who got in a car accident was wearing shoes. Therefore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need to take my shoes off. I'm going right. to die. <laughs> right. So, yep. yeah, we didn't actually talk too much about uh, seed oils yet in particular. Well, uh, yeah, that, that's the that, um, perfect segue. You just read my mind. So, I actually have your uh, article here so, about kind of take, the takedown. It's called a comprehensive rebuttal to yes. seed oil sophistry. There's the word again. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, let's summarize that, I guess. What, uh, what, so, what's the data in, in layman's terms? Um, what's the data supporting the, the, there's no inherent risk? to moderation with seed oil. See, I don't think the claim that there's no risk could be persuasively made. It's just, if you're making a claim that risk exists, it has to be backed up with evidence. And oftentimes the people making claims that the risk exists to begin with aren't able to substantiate that claim credibly. Now, there are instances where risk is not not significantly affected by vegetable oils, and then there are situations where risk is actually attenuated by vegetable oils. There's only one instance that I'm genuinely aware of where seed oils uh, in particular could potentially increase the risk of something, in, uh, uh, not quite independently. Um, is it, that if you it just doesn't actually them, have to do... just straight up do shots of seed oils or what? <laughs> The actual endpoint doesn't have anything to do with anything that's unique to seed oils. It's um, there was one trial, uh, the LA Veterans Administration Hospital trial. Uh, the The dose of seed oils that they got in that trial was like it was close to like between it was between sixty and ninety grams a day, right? Mm-hmm. It's a massive dose right. by conventional standards. By any standards, uh, that's a massive dose. Now. There was an exploratory analysis of that data done that revealed that there was a dose response in the number of uh, gallstones that people were getting uh, consuming uh, vegetable oils. Hmm. Now, the thing is that it doesn't actually have anything to do with the uh, vegetable oils themselves. It's not the vegetable oil as a product because it was actually the mediator there is phytosterol. Um, it's not linoleic acid. It's not polyunsaturated fat. It's just the phytosterol content, right? It's the particular seed oils that they were using at the doses they were investigating um, had way too much phytosterol. Which someone wouldn't realistically and, intake that much. Yeah, it, it's really not something that can be extrapolated to a real world scenario where the upper bounds for intake are, are not even approaching half of that. Right? So how, how was and, it studied then? Was it intent? I mean, measured measured quantities and intent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like so, the LA Veterans Administration Hospital study was to, was a study where they took two groups of veterans in a hospital. So it was an inpatient trial, meaning that these people were in a Tightly hospital and being yeah. fed food, right? Mm-hmm. So, like a really high internal validity study. Um, and they had it was basically uh, vegetable oils versus animal fat basically a one-to-one substitution and everything else about the diet was largely the same. They went above and beyond to match these two diets. They even in like they, they 
they commissioned industry to make foods like particularly dairy products that had the vegetable oil substituted for the animal fats in the dairy products. So they had seed oh, wow. oil ice cream, right? Wow. So like they went above and beyond to make sure that everything was matched and that the subjects were blinded to which group that they were in. Hmm. Um, really, really high internal validity study. Yeah. So they found, of course, I mean, they found that there was uh, a statistically significant reduction in total mortality, in uh, cardiovascular disease mortality, uh, in skin cancer incidents. Like, there, there were a bunch of endpoints that they measured. But the only thing that actually increased in risk was uh, gallstones. Mm. And it was non-significant compared to control lower than about 50% adherence. So among the higher adherers, there was a dose response curve, like there was a dose response to the vegetable oils, but the doses among the highest adherers are nothing that anybody engages with in the modern food environment, even eating a diet of processed foods. Yeah, um, you'd have to try real hard to get that many. That especially the types of vegetable oils that they were using in this trial were specifically a really high phytosterol vegetable oil, corn oil, hmm. which... Corn oil isn't really used in isolation for a lot of things anymore. Usually you get like soybean oil or canola oil or sunflower oil, which are all kind of lower in phytosterol. And people are generally consuming lower than 90 grams a day oh, <laughs> of yeah. vegetable oils right. in general per day. So overall, like it's not, it's not an end point that people generally need to worry about. And any, anything that's super high in phytosterol, uh, delivered it uh, to the same degree has been associated with uh with with gallstones so like phytosterols associate with gallstones and we even have mendelian randomization um actually divulging this as well that there are certain single nucleotide polymorphisms affecting the efflux of phytosterols that actually correlate with with gallstones. So we have a lot of layers of plausibility to phytosterols as the exposure of interest in the vegetable oils, but it's not something that you can generalize to all vegetable oils. And it's not even something that's really physiologically relevant in the modern food environment because it's not a level of vegetable oils that anybody engages with. Right. <laughs> so... Um, that's the only disease that I know of where vegetable oils actually increase the risk. Now, in terms of diseases where vegetable, vegetable oils decrease the risk, we have heart disease, total cancer, skin cancer. Um, it's non-significant for like breast cancer and colon cancer. We have uh, type 2 diabetes. There's a stepwise dose response uh, for type 2 diabetes. So the more vegetable oils you consume, the lower your type 2 diabetes risk seems to be. And there is biologically plausible mechanisms to explain that association. Um, fatty liver, also uh, more vegetable oils you consume, the lower your risk of fatty liver, also biologically plausible mechanisms to explain that association. Um, results for age-related macular degeneration are largely non-significant. Cognitive decline, there is one instance in the sensitivity analysis that I did or the subgroup analysis that I did that would seem to suggest that vegetable oils might lower the risk of total cognitive decline. It's not clear. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the problem is that the burden of proof is on anybody saying that the vegetable oils increase risk. It's like, okay, well, they increase risk. Here's a mouse study where some mice got some tumors that therefore they increase risk. And it's like, well, <laughs> how many, how many people got tumors in that study? 
Right. None. Nobody. Nobody got tumors in that study. It's a different species, right? So in terms of the hierarchy of evidence, which is basically a hierarchy of internal validity, animal studies and in vitro studies are very, very close to the bottom hmm. because they don't tell us much about human outcomes, right? So like if we were to use an example of how, just to illustrate how often mechanisms fail us. So animal studies and in vitro studies are used to ascertain mechanisms, but these mechanisms don't always pan out. And we can use some data from the domain of pharmacology to kind of make the point. So if you take a mechanism that has, you know, biological plausibility in humans to make a pharmaceutical, for example, and say you get it approved for a grant and you get grant money for a phase one trial. If you follow the success rates of those mechanisms from phase one, two, and three clinical trials all the way to FDA approval, it's about 7%. So that's, that's not even including the adjudication process for granting the grant money in the first place. So a lot of these mechanisms don't even get grant money because they're so unpersuasive. But if we just, if we just ignore that, like 7% is like a really generous number for how often mechanisms actually succeed and translate into human outcomes. Right. Uh, it's probably much lower than that after you account for how many uh, mechanisms don't even get grant money because they're so unpersuasive. So mechanisms fail us really, really often. Right. And if we look at things like higher internal validity um, methods of investigation, like prospective cohort studies, uh, I know a lot of people are like, oh, epidemiology, though, food frequency questionnaires are unreliable, though, you know, a lot of those people aren't really well acquainted with the evidence that is attempting to validate uh, or has made attempts to ascertain the validation of cohort studies when compared to randomized controlled trials. So there have been two reviews done on that particular topic, and they came to very similar conclusions. Overall, in nutritional epidemiology, the results of nutritional ep the results of nutritional epidemiology agree with randomized controlled trials between 65 and 67% of the time. Now compare that to higher it, than 7, well, right? <laughs> it's it's higher than 7, but it gets it right more often than it doesn't. Right. Right? The results are concordant more often than they are not concordant, which is way above and beyond what we can glean from animal studies. Right. Well, so, and, and epidemiology gets bastardized because people use it to their advantage when it works. Yeah, people like to cherry pick epidemiology uh, when it suits their bias and shit on it when right. it doesn't suit their <laughs> exactly. bias. And that's true for everything. So, right. um, yeah, so, so <clears throat> that offers a layer of you know kind of challenges for for people who who are versed in the literature and can defend it. Right. You know, because they just like, oh, God, I got to unpack this again. It's like, no, this is why co cohort, cohort studies have a higher degree of internal validity because we can take other types of prospective data to make to make the case, too. So we take ecological data, which I mentioned earlier. Say we take the ecological association between vegetable oils and type 2 diabetes incidents, right? It's an ecological association. They're both going up in the population at the same time. However, it doesn't tell us anything about what's happening to the people who are actually consuming more vegetable oils and what's happening to their specific endpoints, because we're not measuring that with the ecological association. Right. What we're measuring is just the ecological association. But when you actually do a cohort study, you give somebody a food frequency questionnaire and say, okay, how much vegetable oil are you consuming? And know. you validate that food frequency questionnaire by 
you know, investigating things like biomarkers or 28 day food diaries and food diaries, which is basically like giving these people like chronometer for 28 days and then validating the food frequency questionnaire over like over and over and over and over again, like food, frequency, food frequency questionnaires have so much validation now that you can actually predict somebody's nu- like nutritional status based on the, how they fill out these questionnaires. Mm. Like you can actually predict biomarkers of intakes of certain foods um, within a pretty narrow margin of error based on how people fill out these questionnaires. So they're highly, highly reliable for a lot of exposures in nutrition. So what about, before I forget, because it keeps popping in my head and then I keep forgetting. Yeah. There's about three dozen of my close buddies that I've known my entire life that right now are feeling vindicated. So I have to ask, <laughs> what about when we fry our food in it? Yeah. You see, this is this is interesting because, you know, there are a lot of um, – there, there are a lot of – uh, speculations about mechanisms, but it actually has been investigated directly, uh, or, or it's been investigated uh, via cohort studies, like I was saying before, and some case control studies. But I'm not going to count the case control studies here because they're case control studies. Like I'm not terribly interested in the case control studies. So in terms of core, in, in terms of cohort studies, when you isolate. Uh, exposure to vegetable oils that have specifically been heated. So is the, the claim that in- that makes them more more dangerous somehow? Yeah, yeah. The, the claim heating, is basically that it's that it, it 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 makes them less healthy. But the thing is that in that data, the inverse association with disease. So basically, the benefits uh, for these disease outcomes seem to survive these oils being heated. Hmm. Um, so I'm not terribly persuaded that heating like affects the health value in a massive way uh at least heating the way people typically heat their vegetable oils in the population with with things like fried food it's incredibly difficult to parse out because fried food tends to be hyper palatable regardless of what it is calorically dense it's calorically dense. So, and calories are one of the exposures that food frequency questionnaires tend to not capture uh, uh, very precisely. Sure. So, it's really difficult to parse out when it comes to things like fried food. Well, anybody um, that's but, questioning that too, just go ahead and put in your food tracker of choice. Go ahead and put uh, baked chicken wings, and then put fr- deep fried chicken wings, right. and let yeah, me know exactly. what the calorie right. difference is. Right. Yeah, so, they're, they're just higher in calories. Like I know Tucker Goodrich had an article not too long ago saying like, oh, what's the cause of obesity? Where he looked at a basically like um, uh, an analysis. It was a sensitivity analysis looking at a bunch of different types of foods and their association with weight gain. And he looked at like boiled potatoes and it was like marginally associated and then he looked at, you know, french fries and it's massively associated. And he's like, look, the seed oils are causing causing obesity and it's like it's triple the calories (laughs) it's 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 half of the food volume or like a quarter of the food volume and triple the calories like i don't think that's a very sound inference because (laughs) that association can be explained by the conventional paradigm you're not adding any new information by pointing this out right um right plus the hyper palatability i mean give me a boiled potato and i'll barely get through one but cut that yeah. potato into fries and salt it and i'll <laughs> i'll eat as many as i can possibly stuff in 
Yeah. In fact, for for a period of time there, about a month ago, I was going through a phase where I like my breakfast in the morning was just like a plate of fries. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they're super good. There's no. Yeah. They're it. delicious. <laughs> so we got to wrap up here. We're kind of running up against time here. So yeah, no problem. To kind of summarize uh, your attitude towards the seed oils in general. So obviously, is it more of a you're just not afraid of them, but you're not saying, you know, you need to make sure to get them in as into your diet as a healthy part of your diet. Is it more of just, yeah, they don't need to be demonized. And if you are eating them as part of a normal amount that, that that's perfectly fine. You shouldn't be scared. Okay. I mean, like I can answer this question by just referring to the conclusion of my article, wherein I state in conclusion, vegetable oils appear to be a health-promoting addition to the diet and seem to offer a range of health benefits and little to no apparent health risks to the general population. However, one should exercise caution when navigating the current food environment as vegetable oils are included in many foods that are not particularly health-promoting. If one chooses to consume vegetable oils, it would probably be wise to integrate them into a healthy eating pattern in ways that do not promote the overconsumption of calories. Some possible healthy ways to include vegetable oils in the diet could be in the form of salad dressings or as cooking oils for sauteed vegetables. Perfect. I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to wrap it up there, guys. So uh, where, what's the best place for people to uh, reach out to you if they if you they want to attack you or praise you or send you money? <laughs> <laughs> I would suggest uh, my Twitter is where I'm most active on social media. Um, but if somebody would prefer, like if people would prefer, they can actually catch me on Discord as well. I'm usually on Discord and there's a link to my Discord server on my Twitter account. So if you prefer to engage with me there, that's fine. I'm also on Instagram. Um, and that's pretty much it. I don't, I mean, I have a podcast, I have a website you can go to. Yeah. And I'll put all those the, links too in the, in the yeah, show notes for everybody. So they the can, can check it out. Com. Yep. Uh, yeah. So awesome. that's pretty much where people can find me. Well, next time I come up to Winnipeg to go visit the, uh, museum, I'll, I'll look you up. We can go have some oh, fries yeah, together. That'd be awesome. Go watch the wild beat the jets. <laughs> we'll eat some seed oils together. <laughs> there you that's go. Right. In fry form, please. <laughs> <laughs> all right everybody shots. well that was nick heber joining us for a awesomely informative interview so make sure you check him out on all his information i'll have all that posted and uh you know we will uh i'm just gonna wrap it up there so we'll see you next week hey.